Well, this has been a unique series for us. We said you asked for it. Last spring, we asked some questions about what you wanted us to talk about, and a couple of the major topics that came up were related to politics and specifically race issues and some of the other issues surrounding life. So we began this series a couple of weeks ago. If you weren't with us, I do want to encourage you to go back because we built kind of a foundation for how the kingdom comes differently in the first message and spoke even particularly about the fact that, and this is a great encouragement, that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And we know one of his major prayers is that you and I will be one as he and the Father are one, that the very love the Father has for Jesus will be in us and will change how we live. So the beautiful thing is in the mess, in the mix of this mess we're living in, God is for us. And last week we looked at the beginning of life, and today we're going to look at what we call the murky middle, this issue related to racial disparity, the pains of poverty going on, kind of a broad look at this as it's become very polarizing. To get us started, I thought it would be helpful uh, to just go back to Disney. So this is from the movie Inside Out. This is about emotions, and this is the beautiful trigger of anger going on right here in the circumstances around. And the reason I want to start there is you and I know there are even words that are used that people are listening for to react to. And maybe even a thought, if this is talked about or that's talked about, oh no. In fact, just consider it for a minute. I mean, you hear the word social justice, for example, and some of you will say, oh, that's connected to, and you're beaten down the road in that. If you're on another side, you might say, oh my goodness, at the worst, at the least it distracts from the gospel, at the worst it's heresy, and you're ready to blow up and respond to that. And we have this all the way around. We have people chanting and caring for black lives that matter. And then we have blue lives that matter. And then we have all lives that matter. And then we argue and scream about that back and forth. We have names that we call each other as it relates to things like this, from snowflakes to xenophobes, from racist right-wingers to liberal Marxists, from the slippery slopes of liberal theology to Christian nationalism taken over the right. And so all I want to do before we get in is protect you from blowing a gasket today. I'd like you not to have a stroke and not to suddenly just react and go nuts. And here's what I want you to understand as we've wrestled with, tried to help you with, we simply want to look scripturally at this. So I said it in the first message. I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. Anything we look to as the church looks at acting in a different way with the kingdom of God. Because God's kingdom doesn't come demanding power and might. In fact, it's one of the beautiful things in the Psalms. It says God doesn't take excitement in the strength of a horse or the strength of an army or strength of men, but those who fear the Lord and put their trust in him. In other words, the kingdom comes a different way. And we looked week one very specifically at that. That's why I'd encourage you to go back. But what I want to do is give us a better kind of perspective scripturally of what's it look like What is justice, for example? What's it look like for the church? What's the church to be? Who are we? What's the framework around these issues? And how do we live into them? And so it will take us to Jesus specifically. It will take us back to the Old Testament and looking how the Israelites saw it. And it'll take us back to the early days of the church and see how scripture forms this. Not how we talk about it, but how we form it. And so I wanna begin with this in mind. And let me take you first. to a wonderful picture. This is a picture that Rembrandt did, a painting, and it's actually a painting from the story of the Good Samaritan. That's what this is from. And we'll come back to it later, but this is at the end of the story where literally there's a man who's beaten and this Samaritan takes them to an inn to be taken care of. That's at the end of the story. 
But with the story in mind, I want to take you back to how it begins and why the story is even told in the account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's told because of something that happens three times in different gospel accounts. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three times this question comes up, either directly to Jesus or Jesus asks it and it's answered by a, a religious leader because their question's going back and forth. And the question is this, what's the greatest commandment? What does all this mean? And we talked a couple weeks ago about the 613 commandments. So Jesus' answer is very simply this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and in the Greek, with all your mind and strength. In the Hebrew, it's just three. And then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you will live. You will have eternal life, both now and forever. By the way, in the account of the gospel, living new as it starts now. It doesn't start as a get out of jail free when you die. It means the kingdom begins to come now. In the midst of that, he's asked a question. Who's my neighbor? This is well before Mr. Rogers, but it's who's my neighbor? And it's very simply, the reason they're asking is for this. Tell me who it's not. Tell me the limits of my neighbor because there've got to be limits as the law creates limits in places we don't have to. Tell me who my neighbor is is as much saying who isn't my neighbor. And so Jesus in response tells a story. He tells a story about a man who is beaten by robbers and left for dead. And in case you don't know, in the Jewish culture, when someone's left that way, they are literally unclean. They're not to be touched. So first, a priest comes by, a priest who's religious, who knows the law, you're not to touch them, and walks on the other side and continues on. And then a Levite, also one who's more religious, sees the limits, walks by, and does not touch them. By the way, it's following the very letter of the law. And then the third one comes by, and he chooses a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan to a Jewish person is their biggest enemy, those with which they see lower. There's who God made, and then they think there's less than. And they see Samaritans this way. They're, they're a bit inbred. They don't really truly understand the gospel. They believe things they shouldn't. They're basically not smart enough or good enough like us. So I want you to picture, before we even go on, who you see as those people that you can't stand. And I want you to know that Jesus made them the hero in this story. I just want to start there, because it's fascinating that Jesus does this. So the Samaritan comes by and helps this man who's near dead, takes them, this is literally the picture Rembrandt shows, takes them to an inn to then have someone take care of him after what he's done initially, and even pays for what it's going to take to take care of them. So at great sacrifice does this. That's the picture of the story. Jesus is now giving an example and an image to not only who our neighbor is, but how we're to love each other. And then at the end of this story, he says this, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law who asked this said the one who had mercy on him. <laughs> now it's basically the hero in the story, not the neighbor himself, but the one who acts like a neighbor is the one they always have disdain for. Just consider that for a minute. And think of the groups that we vilify, because do we not, show of hands, do we not vilify people more than we ever have in the past, at least in my lifetime? Raise your hand. We do. We, we know we do. Oh my goodness, you're this or you're that, you're this or you're that. Even the words I use today are ways that we put someone in a camp. And once you talk about it, you're a villain. And Jesus picks the very ones they have disdain for and says, that's your hero. He doesn't even really say, that's the one to love. He says it in a way that's even harder, go and do likewise. In other words, be like them. 
And so from the beginning, if we're to look at this mess we're in, I want to begin just where Jesus does. And it really sets the course for everything we've done in this series, which is that Jesus always shows us that life and the preservation of life and the dignity of life always overrules the rule. In other words, whatever we can do, we would say, to be pro-life, to be for life. That's why in this series, we've actually walked through birth, the middle, and we'll walk through the end of life because guess what? From womb to tomb, the church are people that are for life, all the way. So Jesus is giving us this ethic that all of these commands are about loving your neighbor and specifically about helping with life. Now, with that, that's kind of the overview, but I want to take us now through some different places in Scripture to get a broader picture of this, because literally, Jesus is going, your enemy isn't just your friends, it's your enemy. Your your friends, basically, your neighbor is not just your friends, it's your enemies. Your neighbor are not just those similar to you, they're different than you. Your neighbor aren't just those you know, they're strangers and aliens and foreigners. Make no mistake, this is an image of foreigner, by the way, because... Samaritans were that to the Israelites. There's one scene where Jesus goes into the land of Samaria and it's scandalous that he's even there. So I want you to get a picture. Jesus is expanding the view of who is my neighbor. But I want to take it back to the Levitical laws, to where Jesus draws from. And we understand Jesus came to fulfill them, not abolish them. So You don't have to turn here, but in Leviticus 19, there's a big holiness code, meaning there are a bunch of verses that tell us how to treat each other. There are things like, don't hate your brother, love your neighbor, don't use unfair measures and not give them what they deserve, love your neighbor. And it's rule after rule about how we treat them lovingly and not angrily. And thrown into that is a very specific one as it relates to people that are different, that I think might even be one of the places Jesus draws from in all of this. And this is what it says. When a foreigner resides among you in the land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Now, I'm not making a case for specifically for us dealing as a government or any of those other things. I'm talking about the Lord and how he deals with people. So I just want you to hear this. He is speaking about your neighbor or those who are different than you. In fact, he then gives a reminder of what that means. Love them as yourself, which, by the way, is the commandment, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Now, this is central to our understanding of why God cares so much for people in despair and poverty and that are different than us. You see, Israel, after promise to be this nation for God, end up getting some freedom from this famine in, in Egypt. But over time, they become slaves and foreigners and treated very, very horribly. And you will find over and over and over again, God cites this for them, or the prophets do, to say, hey, don't forget your past. Hey, don't forget where you came from. Hey, don't forget what you went through. In other words, You were foreigners. You were people that were treated less than. You always need to remember that. Keep it in your mind. Keep it near you because we all know that once we get away from difficult times, we suddenly start to think, life's good and I'm good. In fact, I'm not just good. I'm great. And we misunderstand and say the blessing of God are the good things that happen to us because our life is comfortable and better and we somehow think we're different and deserve it and miss what he says very simply to Israel, don't forget 
You were a foreigner. Don't forget you were an oppressor. Don't forget this is your journey. Now, I want to expand that before we move to the church because this whole idea that's forming in the Levitical laws takes a bigger shape and really begins to be known clearly through two simple words, justice and righteousness, justice and righteousness. So I want to show you how God perceives this and then explain it a little bit because this is one of the arguments we get into when we talk about justice and what it means in our civil world. And then we get some advocating one way and some saying that's not it and advocating another way. But I would tell you neither really give a good picture, biblically at least, of what this means. And so I want to just show you a couple passages that will help us give a better form to this before we consider further. And I want to say this, the justice of God is born out of love. In other words, God freed Israel from their slavery and bondage, not out of something they did, but out of love for them, something they could never do. He didn't wait and go, oh, you've kind of earned it, now it's time to get out. He just said, I, my heart is broken and I will free you. By the way, that's what we believe as Christians for our sin, you understand that? I'm going to come back to that because I think it's one of the misses we have in life. So I'm going to use two passages uh, that are significant in this. One is there's a series of blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. If you do this and if you don't do it, and this is one of the curses, one of the things that he's emphasizing in how Israel's to live. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and all the people shall say amen. Now, this is where ultimately this goes in terms of those who are less than in Israel culture. It's typically the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. In other words, those who are different and those who are in poverty. That's how God looks. And we'll come back to that. But I want you to see he talks about justice. Now, let me clarify what justice means in the Old Testament. The word is mishpat. It's over 200 times it's in there. And there are two aspects of justice. One is retributive, which means it needs to be fair and equitable so that there's impartiality. Scripture's very clear when someone is brought for something they did wrong, that justice should be the same for everyone on the merits of what happened. You don't favor somebody because they have more. You don't favor somebody because they have less. Justice is about the right consequence. That's true. Now, what's happened is there, there are some in the church who've focused only on that out of this reaction to what we call, or what the culture calls social justice, because it's perceived often as you just give to people who don't have and kind of make it all the same. Which I'm not even saying that's what it means, I'm just saying that's how we understand it, so people argue about it and they get angry. Here's the deal though, justice, mishpat, primarily, and for the most part, is not used about retributive, it's used about rectifying justice. Which means it's used to help, as it says in this passage, those who've been unduly burdened down to have life be better. That for God, the heart of justice is the very heart that freed Israel from slavery. It's the very heart that Israel's to have, that they're never to forget the alien and the fatherness and the widow. In other words, your heart should always be for those who are beaten down. And in case you don't know, the primary view in the Bible of people who are beaten down is not they cause their own trouble. It's a mess because of what's going on around them, which is one thing that's very hard for us. Let me take you to another one, though. And this other one is literally the voice of the prophets. That's why I want us to get a broader picture of this. So this is Amos is where I'm going to go and show you this. But I want to tell you a little of Amos' story as a prophet so you get a context for this verse. 
So Amos uh, lives in the southern part of what is now Israel broken up into two areas. There's the northern and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is doing quite well. In fact, the king himself is very wealthy and living a posh life, but it's not disseminating well. And particularly in the south, though in other areas, those who are oppressed are becoming increasingly despairing and oppressed. So Amos gets this picture from God. He's to give to this king, to these people. And he begins to tell God's judgment on the nations for not recognizing those in need, those in disparity. And he talks about all these other nations. And so you might think, well, Israel's in the good. But what happens is every nation he talks about is like a, basically like a target around Israel. <laughs> and then he zeroes in on Israel. And in case you don't know, in, in the Old Testament, two things brought about Israel's demise from their kingdom. One was they worshiped other gods alongside of God, meaning it was God and others. And the other was they forgot those who were most oppressed, just like they forgot what they lived in. Remember, you were foreigners and you were a mess and you were broken down. And so it leads to this really beautiful statement that's often even used from Amos 5. And it's this, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. The reason I wanted you to see this is this is a culmination of how Israel was to understand the oppressed and those who were in disparity, those who were living in poverty, those who were different, those who were forgotten, those who were forsaken. So I already explained to you, justice is this re response to make things right. Righteousness is the proactive way to act in doing what's right. We often think of righteousness as this holy living. Well, I... I don't swear and I read my Bible and I never do things I shouldn't. I'm only, I'm just, I'm, I'm in a prayer meeting 24-7. That's what I do. And we limit righteousness to this idea. Yet righteousness in the Hebrew understanding was about the activity that was done to make things right for the people around us. So let me take you to one of Jesus' teachings. He says this very simply. When you do your righteous acts, don't do them for others to see, but just do them so your father knows. He's talking very specifically, it's called almsgiving, it's giving to the poor. That's what he's talking about. Literally, do things to help people in need. That's what you do. And you do it all the time. And I want you to understand, Amos is challenging Israel because they have forgotten the call to both responsively make things right and to proactively act and make things right. And this is really important that we see it first because I don't want us to miss out. This connects even to Jesus and the neighbor. It connects to how we love those around us that we don't look and say, oh, well, they caused it on themselves. We look with great pain and say, don't you remember? Don't you remember that Israel were foreigners and in slavery and forgotten? And God came to them and rescued and brought life and hope. In other words, that matters deeply to the heart of God. Now, you may say, well, we're not Israel. We're good to go. God, some people even think God kind of replaced Israel with the church. And so we're not accountable to any of what Israel, it's a new day. But I want to take you to Romans with this. And I want to take you to a picture. This is where it gets to us and our connection. So in Romans 11, Paul describes Israel as an olive branch and an olive tree. And he says very simply that the olive branch, this olive tree, has had branches of Israelites that haven't lived well and they've broken off, that there's empty branches. And then he describes these early Gentiles, who are the early Christians that aren't from Jewish favor, 
that you're grafted in. Now, what's crazy is he calls them a wild olive branch, which in case you don't know, you would never graft in a wild olive branch into a stable olive tree. You might do the opposite because you want the stable olive branch to bring life to the wild olive tree. So that alone is crazy in case you don't know, not that you care or you're horticulturists. But here's the picture of it. These are branches grafted in. They're tied to it and brought together, but where they come from and what they're attached to is a tree they didn't make. You, you see the picture I'm getting at right now? And this is a big picture that goes on in the life of the early church. And then Paul says this about it. Don't consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You know what he's saying to these early Christians? Stop thinking you're so great. Stop thinking you're better than and in case you don't know, this is the source, I believe, of where we've come into things like issues with race and ethnicity and barriers is early on the church thought, Israel blew it, they're less than, we come along and are greater. As if to say we wouldn't have done it. And as if to not attach to the story, don't forget you were foreigners. Because guess what? The Gentiles, even being invited in to follow Jesus, we were seen as people that didn't belong. If you go back to Acts, when the early church begins, this is still a sect of Judaism, and all these early disciples are only going to the Jews. And Gentiles are starting to, people who are not Jewish is what the Gentiles are, all other nations, they're basically any other group of ethnic group, they're starting to follow Jesus, and the Jews are like, eh, they're, they're Jesus Jr. Until God supernaturally shows them they got it wrong, and then shows them how the Spirit's filling them, and then they quickly turn and go, man, we missed this. These people are made in his image just like we are. These people are responding just like we are. And so always at the root, there's this weird thing of we have an idea that one group is superior to another and the demise of that group is caused by their inferiority and the elevation of our group is by our superiority. Which in case you don't know, what that simply does is it says God didn't make all of us in his image. And he did. He did. So when we're in this mess we're in right now, if we see people as less than, if we look and say they cause their own, if we look and say it's that problem because of, we missed the way God looks at people. Now, I'm not trying to answer all that's gone on to create the environment we're in. But I am saying to you, don't for a minute say that group caused it to themselves and I never would have because you have forgotten where you came from and you've forgotten where you've been brought into and you've forgotten the very call of God to bring his justice and righteousness to a painful world in need. You know, I have, I've watched what's gone on in the last few years and it's been just heartbreaking to me because of the way in the church we fight about a political issue and make it that. You're either this or you're that. It's weird, particularly on this issue, as it relates to any kind of ethnic disparity. I have watched three different, very conservative Christian leaders advocate and each one be blasted, as if to say they've abandoned their gospel-centric life. And I wanna show you, just very simply, from two passages, how this is not an add-on to the gospel, this is central to it. So let me take you just to two examples. These are from Paul's letters. 
And in this one, in Ephesians 2, he's describing the work that Jesus did communally, not just alone. And he said words like he said here in Romans about don't think so highly of yourself. And then he says this, for he himself, meaning Jesus, is our peace, the one that brings us together, who has made the two groups one, because Jews and Gentiles were where the fight was back then, and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body, in his body, reconciling both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. When someone tells you the idea of reaching out and bringing reconciling between groups is an add-on and a distraction from the gospel, they are wrong. What it is, is we only focus individually on what I'm to do and you're to do, and we don't ask the questions of this new kind of community God wants to make. Let me show it to you in another letter, and this is a common theme of Paul. This is in Galatians 3. In each one of these, by the way, one has more power than the other, and there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. By the way, you're grafted into this one family through what Jesus has done and heirs according to the promise. You know, those who seem like they have less and those who seem like they have more, that is a misunderstanding and the wrong way to view who we are in him. Now, this does not eliminate their identity as who they are, it simply elevates and puts us together in a new kind of community, in a new way of living, in a new way of loving. Jesus, through his work, has done something communal, not just something individual, but both occur. In fact, you might even just say it this way. The cross can bring a new kind of reconciling community. It really can. And, and here's the challenge we live in today. And this is true at all three of our campuses, in fact. Here in the Tri-Cities, and this is true all throughout Ottawa County, and it's true in Coopersville as well, we, are a very, uh, we have very small ethnic, basically ethnic numbers in every community, and much more so here. And even in our church, we're reflective of our community. There are very few that look different than most of you. In Muskegon, while there is a much higher rate of ethnicity, the division is just as high. Muskegon is the fifth most segregated city its size in the country related specifically to black and white. It's 19th when you look at all of them. And if you go to larger cities, guess what? It still happens in most places. So what we know is that we haven't gotten there. Now, I'm not telling you why or how. I'm just telling you it's true. We're not there. We live in a very isolated way. It's crazy. You know, 12 years ago when I moved into this role, maybe it's 13 now. I'm losing track, but a while ago maybe even 14, I'll keep thinking. We started talking about things like walking across lines to people we don't know, helping the forgotten and the forsaken, reaching out to the widow and the orphan, and by the way, the foreigner, and all of you loved it. You did. Then as this climate has gotten where it is where we polarized, suddenly we got accused of becoming more divisive and accused of being more liberal, and, and nothing changed. What changed was our perception. Somehow we started to think everything was different because we were told that by people fighting for power. And you know, my biggest prayer through all of this has just been that God would help us to let the scales fall off our eyes. 
Because make no mistake, I'm not putting any stock in any governmental plan to fix this. In fact, we need Jesus to help us with this. <laughs> That's the crazy part. We do get that. We just have a hard time actually living into it. So after years and years of saying this should be different and trying to take a few steps, last year I made a bigger step in my own life just to start reaching out, praying, Lord, who might be a pastor, someone that I can be developing, and grow in a friendship with in Muskegon that looks different than me and lives differently than me. And built, began to build a friendship with a man who very graciously agreed to even hang with me because, you know, he basically, his name is Joe Lane, and I'll tell you more about him, but he basically said, man, when George Floyd happened, I had tons of pastors call me and no one called again. And I called much later and kept hounding him. And, uh, and Joe has been so kind and gracious to me. Joe grew up actually in the very city I grew up in, but in a very different part of town. Joe grew up uniquely in an area that was integrated and had a much broader experience. Joe works as a pastor leading a church that's more multicultural than most I've seen in most communities. He's an administrator in a Muskegon public school system, one of the only African-Americans in leadership there in a predominantly white culture, and takes pictures. And you see him, you even go, oh, I've seen him, he's a photographer. But I, I sat down with Joe and just asked some questions that I thought might at least move us in a good direction, have us listen to his impressions. And one thing Joe would tell me is, hey, I'm not speaking for all people or all people that are black. I'm just giving you my thoughts on this. But you'll see the questions. We, we ask a few, and then he'll give some responses, really four of them, to, well, five, two in the first, and then three more. And I just want you, are you open to just hearing and maybe listening to what someone who lives differently than you and I experiences? So take a look at the screen. when I've been the person that someone's asked me to officiate their wedding or asked me to bury their loved one, and I'm standing in a church of 200, 300 people, and I'm the only African-American in the room. And I'm like, how in the world did I get to be the only person that looks like me here? Now, I feel honored that they would ask me, but I'm the only person, which also makes me go, well, where are the rest of your friends that look like me? So I don't even know if it's a fair question to ask, but it is something that I internally live with on a regular basis. And so I think um, from a biblical perspective, um, Jesus did a lot of work with people who were different and not like him. Um, it would have been easy for him to not talk to the Samaritan woman because that's what it was expected. But why did he do something different? And that's where I think the church is called to kind of step out of what's comfortable for us and do what might be best for the kingdom. So I asked my father that question, actually, um, probably about a year ago. I said, Dad, you know, um, do you, th you think things are harder? And he just said they were different. And I think, um, I think the reason that things felt harder earlier, like when I was growing up, was because I think that they were more blatant. So if a person didn't like you because of the color of your skin, you knew it. And so for, for an African-American, I often have to, <clears throat> and I don't, I don't, like the fact that I do this, but it's, it is true to who I am. I go into situations with speculation because I don't know. Um, when David, the kid across the street, called me the N-word every day, I didn't have to question. For as much as I didn't like it, I didn't have to question how he felt about me. Um, nowadays, I think the difference is I don't know.
if the gospel that I'm teaching or preaching doesn't work everywhere, then it probably doesn't work anywhere. So if I say to you, if you have enough faith, God is going to give you wealth, that doesn't work for people in Cambodia or Ethiopia or even some parts of America. And so when we start to think about some of the other things that we prioritize in faith, we have to be, I don't want to say equitable Christians, but we have to be people who are thinking bigger than what's in it for me and what's in it for the kingdom. Because if I'm only thinking about what's in it for me, then I'm not like Jesus because he himself laid down his life for the sake of us. And so what's in it for me is what's best for him. I urge you, brothers, in the way you see God is merciful, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. We're the body of Christ. And at some point, every single one of us is going to stand before the Father. And he's not going to ask us about how much money we had or where we lived. He's going to ask us what we did for his kingdom. And I don't ever want to fall short of serving Christ. And when I think about how he served people, he served everybody. And he especially served those who were struggling, who were marginalized, who were hurting. You know, I've been grateful, and Joe and I continue to grow in friendship. And uh, I'm even asking, is there a way somewhere where we might even hang out as communities at different times over as we move ahead? For me, it's simply moving towards people that are different and learning. And, and I'll be honest, Joe's very kind to me because I ask some really both annoying and probably offensive things at times because I don't know. But he's willing to have a conversation with me and let me listen. And I'm coming to him saying, I don't understand. Will you help me understand? See, the cross can bring a new kind of reconciling community. I, I didn't say it does because it sometimes doesn't because we only look and say, if I just follow Jesus and I just have salvation and I just live and we don't look at us and don't look at the world around us, we miss both another aspect of who Jesus came to bring life to and how he did. It's individual and it's communal. We're not in any way abandoning our need to be saved. In fact, we hold and that's foundational, but we're also saying salvation is also about this new kind of community Jesus wants to make. I want to take you back to Rembrandt's picture. It's interesting in that there were sketches that also came out of this picture before it was actually painted, and those have much commentary on them. You may notice there's actually a dog uh, doing his duty down there at the bottom, which isn't in the final picture, but everything about this has been discussed because of its meaning and implication for us. In other words, he put the dog in here just to go, life is right in front of us, and we don't see it. But I want to take you to a few of these figures in the picture and ask maybe, where are we today? So let me show you this one. This is a woman who's well-to-do. She's watching from the side, and there's much writing about her view, which is kind of like, it's not affecting me, I'm just watching. And I think for us, some of us are in that place. We look and go, I didn't cause this, it's not my problem. There's plenty of things going on in these cultures that don't affect me and I wasn't a part of, and we're somewhat freed from it. And, and there's, a, there's bad and worse in this problem. The bad part is, the way we tend to view it is 
the people in despair and poverty and mess caused it themselves. And there is accountability for things that happen. I'm not diminishing that that's an aspect. So people are not told to be free of consequence. But we miss how God looks at people in despair. And we somehow think we wouldn't be there. And we lose our compassion because we forget where we came from. And this is the worst part. And this has been true of the church, by the way, for centuries. It's sad. I, I didn't get into it all. But there are many, uh, particularly in, in the European colonialization of Christianity, where it was viewed that God's blessing was on these Europeans. That's why life went well. They were living in the resurrection. And those who were living in despair and poverty, like some of these groups, were to live in the cross and the suffering. In other words, they suffer, we rise. They live in pain, we live in glory. And they disconnected from their own lives what true blessing is. And they disconnected from their own lives what despair is. And this is the part that makes it more concerning for me. We can say we believe we're only saved through what Jesus has done, but we live as if we're blessed by what we do and how we do it. I want to say that again. We can say that we believe we only have and live by what he's done, but we live as if it's what we've accomplished. And then what happens is in the physical world and the spiritual world, we attach our achievement and our favor to God rather than our desperation and our need for God. And that's what concerns me most when we look at people in need. You know, I I don't know all the causes of what's going on or what's been happening, but my heart broke during all of this crisis, a pandemic, that the people who were most dramatically affected were people of minority population and people poor, and most times both. And oftentimes the answer I got back was, it's based on chemistry, it's as if to just refute the pain and suffering of a people group we're not part of. When... God's saying, don't stand like this in the corner and just watch, move towards. Maybe you're over here. You see it and you want to move towards it and God's leading you to take steps towards it. Maybe it's opening up and looking for a friendship. Maybe it's moving in a direction of learning. You know, one thing I wish we would all do is take a humble posture. I have never met more people that seem more confident of how they view these issues of injustice when they've never experienced it or done very little to understand it, they've read a few articles online or had a few things that reinforced what they already want to think. But they haven't talked and learned and grown. Maybe it's a step like that for us. Maybe you're already doing this and God's saying, just continue to do and pray. Maybe it's us just praying for it, beginning to ask that. Here's what I know about you. Of all the things, one of the greatest things I have loved and continue to love is whenever we talk about people in need, you are generous in a way I've never seen before. And what I know is your heart's for it. Your heart is for it. I have no question. I am not trying to convince you of something you don't believe. What I'm asking you to do is set aside how you think it's red or blue and political what we do. And instead, why don't you take a cross and start looking through the lens of gratitude of what God's done for us. Let's not forget who we were and how we're grafted in and how we weren't considered part of. And let's start looking at people differently. As we said last week, with grace and truth, instead of judgment and hostility. You know, that'll turn a picture that's black and white into something beautiful. Wouldn't you like to paint this picture? That we're gonna paint this picture? I wanna say it one more time. The cross can bring a new kind of reconciling community. It can. The simple question is, will it?
and will we? Let me pray for us. Lord, I ask, uh, as I did at the beginning, you know, whatever I have said that's not from you, I do pray it will fall to the ground and be forgotten. But I am asking that what's from you, God, would you bring power to it? Would you shake us loose from some of the things we've held to that aren't you? Would you shake us loose from holding on to power being the way things will change? Will you give us humble, listening ears to be compassionate to those who are different than us? God, I don't know how we're to move, but I'm asking you to lead us, and I pray that you would in your holy and powerful name. Amen.